Please join me in reading the scripture text for this morning, found in Matthew and the 25th chapter, and beginning in verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Good morning, everyone. Uh, It's good to be back with you. I always look forward about this time of year. It seems like it's almost this time of year every year when Tim gives me a call and asks that I uh, come and fill in for him, and I really, really appreciate the opportunity to be with all of you this morning. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn back over to Matthew, the 25th chapter. We're going to read that passage one more time for emphasis. It doesn't hurt at all to read the text uh, two or three times probably during a lesson, but we're at least going to read it another time. And as you're turning to Matthew chapter five, 25, you know, I know that the Bible tells of many, many weddings. And probably the most familiar wedding of all, or at least one of the most familiar weddings in all of Scripture, is recorded for us right here in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. It is a parable about ten virgins or ten maidens. Five of them, as we've learned all of our lives in Sunday school class, five of them them were wise, five were foolish. And Jesus, again, tells us this story in Matthew chapter 25. Would you read this passage of Scripture with me just one more time? The Bible says, At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, you need to go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. 
Later the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know who you are. Therefore keep watch because you don't know the day or the hour. Now most of you know that an ancient Palestinian wedding was an absolutely fantastic and wonderful and great occasion. People would come literally from miles around just to be a part of that wedding. As a matter of fact, the Jews used to have a saying that said everyone from 6 to 60 will follow the beat of the marriage drum. Even teaching rabbis would let a young rabbi in training forsake his schooling or teaching on the law for that particular day just to attend a wedding celebration. Well, at the time of Jesus, a wedding was not a sudden thing where you would maybe get engaged and a couple of months later you would get married. But basically, as far as a Palestinian wedding was concerned, there would be three distinct stages that you would have to go through. Number one, there was the engagement. I want to make sure that you understand it's not like our engagements today. The engagement basically occurred back then whenever the parents of the bride and the groom would arrange for their children's marriage. And often that took place literally when they were children. Now, teens, how does that sound? I mean, the bottom line is you had absolutely no say as far as who you were going to marry. I know all of you would probably love that. Your mom and dad would arrange your marriage. And many times that marriage would be arranged years and years and years in advance. In other words, the parents were actually the matchmakers. But then as the date got a little closer, the second stage in this period would occur, and that would be the betrothal stage. And in the betrothal stage, the man and the woman were committed to one another, and it was just like a wedding in terms of celebration. W.E. Osterley, a biblical scholar, says this, and I quote, The man and the woman were bound to one another by the betrothal ceremony, though they were not yet actually man and wife. But so binding, he writes, was the betrothal that if a man actually died during this period, the woman would be treated like a widow. And he continues to say, and if the betrothal were ever broken, a bill of divorcement had to be granted as well. And that went on, brothers and sisters, for an entire year when finally you would reach the final stage. Finally, you would come to the third phase. Finally you would have the wedding ceremony itself. And it was a great time of joy. It was obviously a great time of festivity. And within that wedding stage, there were always two great processionals, two of them, in a typical Palestinian wedding. First of all, the bridegroom and all of his friends, just a huge entourage, would always make their way to the bride's house. And sometimes they would eat and feast there for literally a week. And then the bridegroom and the bride, along with all of their friends, would make their way to their future home. And sometimes all of their friends would stay there for the first week of their marriage. Now that's some kind of a party. Now, apparently in the parable that we've just read, this processional was the bridegroom coming to his bride because if you notice in this parable, there is absolutely no mention of the bride whatsoever. And so the stage for this fantastic, grand wedding ceremony is set. And in the parable, if you remember the story, ten bridesmaids are poised on the road. Their lamps are in hand, ready to escort the groom when all of a sudden... 
night falls. Now, that's not necessarily an odd thing because a lot of times processionals would actually occur in the evening. In fact, that's one of the reasons that those maidens have these lamps in hand. And those lamps, by the way, were more akin to torches. They were just a small little metal cup that was fastened to an end of a wooden stick, and inside the cup they would put some cloths, and inside the cup they would put some resin, and then they would soak them with oil, and then they'd light it like a torch, and they would keep refueling it by just adding oil over and over again. And basically, those torches served two purpose. First of all, it was decorative. But it also would help, of course, to light the way. Well, in the course of the story, you know how this ends. Five of those virgins realized that they didn't know when the bridegroom was going to come, and so they possibly needed to take some extra oil with them. But the five foolish virgins didn't think that far ahead. And as time passes, the story tells us in the Word of God that they became sleepy and drowsy, and eventually they fall asleep. And then at midnight, finally, the bridegroom comes, and suddenly they begin to shout, The bridegroom's coming. The bridegroom is here. And five of them had the capacity to make lights, and five of them didn't have the capacity to make light. And as the five who didn't scurried back to try to find and buy some oil, the bridegroom goes into the house, the door is shut, and that door is never, ever opened again. Now, let me tell you something. There are scores and scores and scores of lessons from that magnificent parable, and I'm going to have time to share with you about two or three of those if I'll have time to share that many. But I want to make sure that you understand that this is a parable that is so relevant to everyone in this auditorium this morning. And here's the very first thing that I want to share with you today. The passing of time fosters familiarity, then routine, And then apathy. I want you to listen to me one more time. The passing of time fosters familiarity, then routine, and then apathy. In this parable, the maidens are on the scene for a very, very distinct purpose. They're going to participate. They're going to celebrate in a wedding celebration. And I can just imagine the excitement that they all had. As a matter of fact, I would imagine that probably 90 to 95% of everybody in this auditorium this morning, you've played a part in weddings other than your own. And it is an honor to be invited to share in such a momentous occasion with someone that we love, to be a part of their joy and happiness. As a minister, as a former minister, I loved preaching wedding ceremonies. I don't love necessarily preaching funeral sermons, but I love preaching wedding ceremonies. I love to stand on a stage just like this this morning, and I don't know how you do it at North MacArthur, but I would imagine that table is taken away and this pulpit is taken away, and I would be standing right about here. And the bridegroom and all of his grooms would probably come out of a door. I don't know if it's that door or some other door, but they'd probably come over to the side. And to see a bridegroom's pale, ashen, scared-to-death face (laughs) is a joy beyond measure. I love to preach wedding celebrations and wedding ceremonies. Well, in this particular celebration, there's an unexpected delay. And even in that kind of an excitement, can't you just hear those ten bridesmaids all chattering and clamoring and giggling? But after a while, that slowed the conversation. And then all of a sudden, the conversation goes silent. And all of a sudden, from silence, you have sleep. 
Now, I have absolutely no idea, and you have absolutely no idea why the bridegroom waited so long. Maybe he lost track of time with his friends. Maybe something went wrong. But when he finally comes down the road, here are ten virgins, and look at this. They are all asleep. I mean, they are sound asleep. And so really, this is a pretty comical scene. Told you that I've done a lot of weddings. I've seen about everything you can see in a wedding. At my sister's wedding, the dog right before the wedding, the best man's dog right before the wedding ate my sister's wedding ring. Isn't that right, girls? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life, but it's true. Funny things can happen at weddings. It was a little comical when the groom all of a sudden comes upon these ten women and they are all fast asleep. But what I want you to see this morning is that the passing of time made the excitement of the moment fade into familiarity and then all of a sudden into slumber. And ladies and gentlemen, isn't that the way it really always is? You enter into a situation, you enter into a relationship, you take on a task at hand, and when you start that, you are all excited, you're all enthused, but then time passes and all of a sudden everything becomes extremely familiar and a routine all of a sudden develops, and the next thing you know, apathy sets in. I love to watch little children take off to school at the very end of August, and they're all excited. They can't wait to get that new teacher and get their new books, and they've got all of their brand-new clothes on, and they're anxious to see all of their friends after summer break, and everything is going great. But how are they the second week in the month of October? I mean, they're dying for a break. Counting the days until Christmas break or spring break. And let me tell you something, it's the same way with work, it's the same way with a job. You know, one of the great problems of marriage, you think about this for just a moment, you have the actual first meeting of a potential husband and wife, and then the, you have the dating, and then there's the courtship, a time of excitement, and then there's the highlight with that wedding and that reception and the honeymoon, and then as time passes, a lot of times the luster fades, routine sets in, and a lot of times couples lose sight of the commitment that they vowed even on a stage like this, this morning. Folks, as troublesome as that principle can be, the examples that I've just mentioned, it has an even greater significance when you and I, as children of God, really look at the big, big picture. Please listen to me. You and I are on this earth for one single purpose. And do you know what that one single purpose is? We are here to serve and glorify the Almighty God. That's it. We are here on this earth to serve and glorify the Almighty God. That's why we're here, period. And when a person recognizes that purpose for his life and responds to God's grace through Jesus Christ and obeys the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me tell you something, it is an exciting and it is a magnificent thing. I mean, have you ever seen, I know you have, have you ever seen a person come to Jesus Christ who really, really realized how lost they had been and who came out of the world of darkness, not just the world of darkness, but the world of deep, deep darkness and selfishness. Let me tell you something. In all of the years I preached at Memorial Road, I'd see some of them almost run down the aisle, wanting to become children of God. 
with tears streaming down their faces. And they wanted to be baptized. I want to be baptized into Jesus Christ right now. And we would go up and we would get them immersed in the blood of Jesus and they would come out new. And oh my goodness, how excited they would be. That person's ready to take on the world for the Lord. He's enthused or she's enthused and so excited. But then what happens a lot of times? Time passes. Life goes on. Things all of a sudden become a routine. The sermons begin to sound the same. The songs begin to sound the same. And a soul of fire all of a sudden turns into a soul of slumber. And the person whose very reason for being here is to, number one, serve and glorify Almighty God in everything we do loses sight of that goal. Let me tell you something. That happens more than any of us would like to think. And there's a warning, too. That can happen. Listen. That can happen not just individually. Listen, please. That can happen collectively. That can happen to an entire church. That can happen when a church spends the majority of its time nitpicking or on other irrelevant issues about things around them and they forget why they're here in the first place. But that leads us to the second point that I want to share with you this morning because I think it helps solve the first. Brothers and sisters, point number two is it seems to me that a key to this parable is identifying the oil. Now, you may disagree with me, but I really think the key to really what we're talking about this morning is coming to grips with what the oil is really all about, identifying the oil. You see, the parable of the virgins is not an extremely difficult parable to interpret, the characters and the symbols seem to be very well defined. For example, if you stop and think about it, now who's, who's the bridegroom? He's Jesus, right? And who are the ten virgins? Aren't they representative of the church? Verse 1 says, the kingdom of heaven is like. They're waiting, they're looking, they're anxious to see him come back. The bridegroom, the bridegroom's appearance is obviously the second coming, the door being shut. Surely... He's talking about the final judgment. I mean, it all seems very powerful, and it all seems very succinct, and it all seems very, very clear, except for one thing as far as I'm concerned. What's the oil? What's the oil? What does the oil mean? What does the oil symbolize? Well, I think it's apparent that the oil represents the essence of faithful preparation on the part of an individual Christian. It is the faithful preparation of a child of God. That faithful preparation that you and I are to take. Now, did you notice that all of the maidens had lamps? Every single maiden had a lamp. The problem was the oil. They all possessed, brothers and sisters, they all possessed the mechanism for making light, but not all of them had the substance that really made that lamp glow. Could it be, just could it be that this parable implies that there's some people, even within the church, who have lamps, but they don't have any oil? They've got the mechanics down. They've got the church jargon down. We've been baptized. We come to church regularly. We sing songs a cappella, all of those right things. And yet when Jesus Christ comes to claim his own, could it be, just could it be that some of those with the mechanics are still going to be searching for the oil? 
they're still going to be running for the oil. Because maybe despite all of those wonderful parts, after all of these years, they've still missed the whole. Do you know what the oil is? Do you know what the core, the essence of faithful preparation is on the part of an individual child of God? Do you know what it is? I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. It is a heart that is centered on Jesus Christ. Pure and simple. It's a heart that is centered on Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. It is a heart that loves Him. It is a heart that adores Him. It is a heart that obeys Him. It is a heart that melts at the thought of His goodness and His sacrifice. It is a heart that not only obeys Him to a T, but it is a heart that goes the second and third and fourth and fifth mile because of who He is and what He has done for me on the cross of Calvary. That's the oil. That is what lets you and me be lights to the world. It's my heart loving Jesus, centered on Jesus. It is in the heart that the core of conversion to Jesus Christ takes place. And by the way, folks, that is why at the end of this parable, you can't borrow the oil. That's why they can't borrow the oil. You know, when I was a little boy growing up in Hayesville, Kansas and going to Bible class, I would hear this parable and it always bothered me because I was taught that as a little boy, you were always supposed to share. Even if you don't have very much, you're always supposed to share. And I thought, well, why didn't the five who had all of that oil, maybe they didn't have much, but they should have shared what they had. But you see, what you see is the limitation of an earthly story trying to illustrate a heavenly principle. You see, the reason in the parable you can't borrow that oil is because, listen, you can't borrow anybody else's faith. You can't, you cannot rest on your daddy's faith. You can't rest on your parents' faith. It's gotta be your faith. You can't borrow somebody else's heart. You can't borrow a heart that looks to and longs for Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something, folks. Conversion takes place in the heart. Jesus has offered us a plan of salvation. That plan is wonderful. That plan is infinitely wise, very, very clear. We're to hear about him. We're to believe in him. We are to repent of our sins. We're to confess his name. We're to be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. But, folks, let me just warn us. Don't fall so in love with the plan that you forget about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Fall in love with the Lord. The plan gets us to the Lord. I don't ever want to be guilty of not stressing that our number one focus in life is to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with everything we've got. I mean to love him with everything that you've got and to obey whatever he says to do. You know, every now and then, I catch myself just stopping. I'm usually in bed. This morning I was just watching Phyllis get ready to come over here. It happens sometimes when I'm driving, even at church. And I think about how much I love Phyllis, how much I love my wife. 
how much I really, really love. Men, do you ever do that? Not about Phyllis, but do you ever do that about your, <laughs> about your wives? Most of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I just stop sometimes and think, Lord, you've been good to me. I don't know where I'd be. I do not know where I'd be without Phyllis. I asked her, I asked her this morning, this is a terrible question to ask, by the way. Do not ask this question, men. I said, now, I know we were married in August, and I know the date was August 16th, but how many years will we be married this August? And she said, we'll be married 44 years this August. And I'm thinking to myself, she has stayed married to me for 44 years. When my two boys, Kelly and Corey, were little boys, we'd both go in and just look at them sound asleep. And I would think, Lord, I don't know why. I'm just so thrilled how much I love those two boys. We were with them Friday celebrating some some birthdays along with their wives. And, and, And when you become a parent and you go out with your adult children, I don't know about you, we don't get to talk very much. But I told Phyllis afterwards, that's okay. You just kind of watch them interact with each other and you just go, isn't this the best thing in the world? Do you ever do that with Jesus? Seriously. Do you ever do that with Jesus? Let me encourage you to just stop sometimes. Just stop and think, Lord, I don't know why you love me that way. We sing songs like this all the time. Lord, I don't know why you love me that way. I don't know how I could be so blessed that you would have died for me. I just love you. The Apostle Paul put it this way. The the Apostle Paul just said, Lord, come quickly. Because he wanted him to come. And the ones with the oil and the lamp, they're the ones who can't wait to see him again. They want to see him. And that leads me to the final lesson this morning. And the final point this morning is simply this. Jesus is coming again. Amen? Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming again. This parable, as a matter of fact, if you study the entire book, this parable is just nestled amidst several other judgment parables. This parable is just kind of smack dab in the middle of a bunch of other coming parables. And just like in the days of Noah, there's going to be scoffing and there's going to be a lot of fun making and there's going to be a lot of laughter. There's a lot of this stuff that's going on right now. Most of the religious world today, quite frankly, thinks it's a joke that Jesus Christ would ever come back. But I want you to know Jesus is coming again and that we he's going to shut he is going to shut this earth down and claim those who were his own. Now, let me tell you something. A lot of people don't believe that. But folks, the one thing that's sure in this parable is that Jesus Christ is coming back. Now, there are a lot of things in this parable that these maidens, these virgins didn't know. They didn't know when the bridegroom was coming, they didn't know how much oil they needed. They didn't apparently know exactly what his reaction was going to be. They didn't know how strong the bridegroom's reaction was going to be. As a matter of fact, you almost get the implication that they listen, that they're a little surprised at how strong the bridegroom's reaction was. But they knew one thing. They knew he was coming. They knew he was coming. 
And the bottom line is, you know he's coming too. We live in a world today that advocates uniformitarianism. That's a big word. But the doctrine of uniformitarianism simply means that things are just going to keep on running. They're just going to keep on going. I mean, it's never going to stop. This old world's just going to keep on. Let me tell you something. It's going to stop. This world is going to stop on the day that Jesus Christ appears again. And the greatest event of all is going to be that same day when we stand in the presence of God and we'll have a chance actually, in essence, to present our lamps with oil that's in them. There was an old Scotsman who was dying. He was on his deathbed. He only had about an hour to live. And he was known for reading his Bible every single day of his life. He loved reading the Bible. As a matter of fact, he would read the Bible out loud. But now he's dying, about an hour left of living on this earth. And his family was around his deathbed. And they decided that they were going to read the Bible to him out loud. And he refused them. He said, I don't want you to read the Bible to me. And they said, well, Dad, why don't you want us to read the Bible? You love reading the Bible. Why don't you want us to read the Bible to you? And I loved his response. The old Scotsman looked up and said, I thatched me house when the weather was warm. I thatched me house when the weather was warm. Do you understand what he's saying? He didn't wait till his deathbed to thatch that house. He didn't wait until he was hours away from judgment to read the Bible. He didn't wait and wait and wait. When I I preached at Memorial Road for 25 years, I cannot tell you how many deathbed baptisms I helped with people, mostly rebaptisms. Don't wait. Now, you know the maidens are the church. You know we're the maidens. Question is, here's the question I want to leave with you all this morning. Question is, are you a foolish maiden or are you a wise maiden? Are you foolish or are you wise? Who in the room this morning, don't raise your hands, You wouldn't anyway. But who in the room this morning's got your heart filled up to the brim with love for Jesus Christ? A love that makes you obedient to him. A love that adores him. And who in the room this morning has all of the mechanics down, but you don't have any oil whatsoever? This only is not for just those people who've never obeyed the gospel, but it could be for those of you who've been in the church for a long, long time who maybe needs to come today and say, I'm going to make it right, right now. I'm going to start falling in love or re-falling in love with Jesus Christ. But if you are not a Christian, you definitely today will want to come to Jesus and love him and obey his gospel. You want to have, I promise you, you want to have what Jesus Christ promised. So that when he does come again, you'll be ready. That is the single purpose of life. 
to serve and to love and to glorify the Almighty God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if you need to respond to the gospel, won't you come right now as we stand and as we sing?